It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. And you're forcing them to lie about other kids' gender. The moment came after remarks by former state Senator Dick Black, 51st in the list of 249 speakers for the public comment session of the Loudoun County School Board meeting. There's been a motion to end public comment. Is there a second? I second. After repeated warnings against audience outbursts. The board voted to end the comments session, and the room descended into chaos. Loudoun County Sheriff's deputies declared an unlawful assembly. At least one person was physically removed from the room by deputies. News 4 saw this man being held in custody outside the building. Virginia state troopers arrived as backup. People spilled out of the building. Some who had gotten a chance to comment criticized the school system's racial equity policies. Others had been planning to comment on a proposed new policy that would affect staff use of transgender students' names and pronouns and access to sports and locker rooms. I hadn't spoken yet. I'm a mom of 11. I took a lot of time to write my speech. I put a lot of heart into it. And then I'm not allowed to speak. They say towards the end, as people were getting more and more violent, they were standing on chairs and throwing things, and we had to go in to help get people, escort them out of the building and and make sure that they were safe. A couple of hours later, the school board reconvened to an empty meeting room. In Loudoun County, Jackie Benson, News 4. All right, Sandy Rios with you this morning. And uh, that is the story that broke across the nation's headlines last fall, 2021. That was Fairfax County, Loudoun County, I mean Fairfax, Virginia. And that's an area, it's a beautiful, beautiful area of Virginia. It's where a lot of, uh, of course, government officials live, a lot of uh, people who whose names would be high profile that you would recognize. It's a great place to raise your kids, or at least it used to be a great place to raise your kids. And I think the whole story behind that particular Fairfax County battle with parents and the school board has become kind of part of America's DNA and certainly did spawn the uh, the governor's victory, the Republican governor's victory in Virginia last fall. But the person that actually covered this faithfully, and I think probably was the catalyst that, that revved up the parents and helped gin up the energy because they became informed, is my next guest. Luke Rosiak is an investigative reporter with The Daily Wire. He broke that story about Loudoun County, Virginia. He is a fellow at the Government Accountability Institute. He previously worked for The Daily Caller, The Washington Post. He's the author of The Congressional Scandal, True Thriller, Obstruction of Justice. And as a matter of fact, I did not know this, Luke lives with his kids and his wife in Fairfax County. Luke Rosiak, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Sandy. 
You know, Luke, I was just thinking, uh, the first time I think I interviewed you uh, was before you wrote your, your first book, and that was about the Pakistani techies who stole all that information in the house and embezzled all this money and received all these salaries and then disappeared back to Pakistan. That was the story of your first book, wasn't it? That's right. <laughs> yeah, so the thing is, I uh, I said, uh, and I, I stand by this, that you were a great investigative reporter uh, when you, I, I'm assuming that's kind of early on in your career, and now you've blossomed into a force to be reckoned with. And let me just say that as a fellow at the Government Accountability Institute, just so that people can uh, have a link here, Peter Schweitzer is the person that is over that. And uh, um, I, I can actually see where you and Peter Schweitzer would be a great team, Luke, because he invest, his reporting is stellar and impeccable, and yours is too. So just, I think you guys are, it's a great place for you to land. Uh, let's yeah, talk it's about a great experience working with Peter. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure, and that that means by its very nature that you research everything, and it's uh, hard to hard to buck what you report. Um, as a matter of fact, today, uh, not you know, without going back on Loudon quite so far yet, you have a story in the New York Post actually two days ago. And it's called How a Dad Became Enemy Number One to Teachers in Loudoun County, Virginia. Can you just kind of recap that story? Because it's fascinating. This is one guy, and he literally did become enemy number one. Tell us what he did and then what they did to him. Sure. So what's interesting is this story actually happened way back in 2015. So before people started talking about critical race theory and school closures and things like that. But it turns out that the school's mentality was always the same, sort of secrecy, cover-ups, contempt for parents. And so what this guy did is he's a mathematician. He knows he's really good with numbers. And he realized that schools were breaking the law by refusing to look at statistics that measured whether teachers were helping kids improve over time in their test scores. Um, They didn't want to look at this data because it shows which teachers are good and which teachers are bad. Um, It was a law that they do it, and they just outright refused. And so when he correctly pointed out that they were breaking the law, they launched this massive vendetta on him. They disbanded the PTA that he was ahead of. They tried to have him arrested. They banned him from school property. They tried to have him fired from his job. Uh, They even tried to get Child Protective Services to take away his kids from him. Um, They also, this one always makes me laugh, they called his dad, who was like in his 90s, the tattle on him. Uh, I I couldn't believe it when I read This is a new story to me, for sure. And this guy, you know, what, he has two degrees from MIT, something like that. Yeah, two degrees. He spent his career as a Navy officer. He's like a really smart dude. And he actually testified before the board reporting on what he had found. Uh, and uh, and so you actually name names here, like board member Deborah Rose was a former congressional staffer for the House Judiciary Committee. And so now she's on the board. And she asked when he testifies that the sheriff remove him. It's interesting to me that he did not do that. You know, you found a little resistance early on, I think. Oh, yeah. They kept trying to get the police to arrest him, and the police were like, well, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, we're not just going to put him in the gulag for criticizing school administrators. So so what happened? He actually ended up school, suing the school board, didn't he? He did, and he won. I mean, they he filed a Freedom of Information Act request for this data, And that's how he found out that they had never looked at it, which is what violated the law. They were required to not only look at it, but to use it to evaluate teachers. 
And so basically what you do is you look at how kids scored on the test last year, the standardized exams, and then how they scored this year. And so you look at the trend. Are they moving? Are they, are they progressing? And so what the teachers want to do is just look at the percent that passed the test. And then they can go, well, you know, if the pass rates are bad, it's not our fault. It must be because demographics, because kids are poor or whatever. And this mathematician knew that there's a way around that. Yes, we can't hold teachers responsible for kids showing up to kindergarten unprepared because they come from single-family houses or single-parent households or whatever. Um, but what we can do is say, look, the teachers are responsible for the kids' growth from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And so that's all he did is say, look, you're required to look at this data. He didn't do it. And so he sued him under the Freedom of Information Act, and he won, and they actually ordered the school, the, uh, the Department of Education, to pay this guy $35,000 as well as give him, give him the data. We're talking to Luke Rosiak, and what I failed to say is he has a brand new book. It's just out this week. It's called Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces Destroying American Public Education. He talks about, a lot about Loudoun County, but he also explores several other school districts, and we'll get into that in just a second. I'm curious to know, in the case of this Davison, who you just described, there are some characters that you mentioned. There's school board member Deborah Rose I just talked about. She was on the House, uh, a staffer on the Judiciary Committee in the House. But then you also mentioned the principal, who was Tracy Stevens, who was unbelievable with, her, with him, too. I mean, they went after him with a vengeance, trying to get him arrested, harassing him, as you said, fired. Uh, are those women still in place? Uh, Deborah Rose isn't on the school board anymore. I assume the principal is still there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she said, you know, the questions you're asking are, are wholly frightening to our staff because they had nothing to do with your kids. And it's like, yeah, because he's um, asking policy questions. And so the schools are used to people, parents going in there and agitating for like special, you know, like <laughs> raise my kid's grade or something like that. But they get really sensitive when you start asking questions about how the institution as a whole is functioning. Um, because they're not used to it, and they know that it's uh, not functioning very well. So, uh, yeah, it was amazing. That, I mean, this lady was, she's the principal, but she's part of the PTA, which is another big problem here, is the, you know, the PTA is not really a parent's group, it's a teacher's group. And so the principal is somehow a member of the PTA, and so when Brian Davidson goes to PTA meetings and starts just asking questions about the standardized test uh, policies, the principal is there, and she issues him a no trespassing order that says if he ever comes back to school property for any reason, he'll be arrested. Well, so that happened in 2015, and, and he did prevail, which is good news. So fast forward to 2021, and Luke, you become embroiled in this story. Uh, the, the, this is the same school district, uh, but it's uh, several years later, same but different. And many of us know the stories that happen, and we will touch on those. But I'm very curious to know, uh, I know that you, I know now that you have children that you're raising in that county. What was the first thing that came to your attention that you said as a reporter, I, I, I got to see this and I got to write about it? The thing that got my attention, I started working on this book way back in 2019, which I know was only a couple of years ago, but in the context of schools, that feels like forever ago now. Um, because they wanted to do busing in some of the areas around, in, in my area, in Fairfax, and they didn't wind up doing it there, but they wound up doing it in Howard County, Maryland, um, right on the other side of D.C. And so a couple of other counties all started doing wanting to do busing at the same time, like 1970s-style racial busing. 
And it didn't make any sense. No one was asking for it. Minorities weren't asking for it. Whites weren't asking for it. They couldn't demonstrate what the point of it was because there's no data suggesting it would result in increased academic performance. And so I realized that, number one, um, local policy matters. Um, when your kid gets moved to a different school, that really changes your family routine. It takes kids away from their friends. It impacts your life in such a personal way that most things Congress does don't have that level of impact. So I realized that local government matters. And the second thing I realized is that um, it, it, local governments had become captive to these really radical national special interests that were they have almost this franchise model like McDonald's, where they have a national headquarters, but then they go down into each town, and instead of flipping hamburgers, they're flipping towns. They're just taking them over one at a time. And so they did busing in Howard County, Maryland, and I watched the school board meetings there where they had public comment. Literally 98% of the public comments were saying, do not do this, please don't do this, and they did it anyway. So there was this total contempt for what the actual clients of these public schools want. You know, uh, Luke, look, I've been around a long time. Uh, My son is actually 41. And so when he was growing up, uh, I got involved in these issues in a different way, different, different details, but same thing. And we lived in a very affluent county west, uh, in the western suburbs of Chicago. And I can tell you the exact same thing was happening then. And hundreds of parents, including me, rose up to fight. And these were professional parents like you see in Fairfax County, you know, doctors and lawyers. And they did the right things in the right way. And the school board could care less. And, uh, and I would say we were resoundingly defeated, and they went on business as usual as though we didn't even exist, locking us out of meetings, the same thing. And so really, this is not new, but thank God that you brought this to the national attention in Fairfax County, and let's continue our discussion of that when we return. The book is called Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces, Destroying American Public Education. And they're not so secret anymore, and they have done a really good job of destroying public education. We'll be right back with Luke Groziak after this. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Well, Sean, in many ways, this was the most severe penalty that this particular judge has ever given to a juvenile defendant. The juvenile defendant, whose name we are not reporting because of his age, was found guilty on all four charges against him for sexually assaulting two different female classmates inside two different Loudoun County high schools last year. Now, the juvenile is not going to go to jail, but he will be sent and live at a locked residential treatment facility where he will undergo rehabilitation and therapy until his 18th birthday. He's ordered to have no contact with the victims nor their families. And he also has to register as a sex offender. And this is the particularly interesting part of this sentencing today because the judge told the courtroom that leading up to the sentencing today, the defendant had to undergo a psychological evaluation and what's called a psychological sexual evaluation. The judge told the courtroom that unfortunately, the court does hear a lot more of these cases 
than the public probably realizes. So they review countless sexual uh, evaluations leading up to these types of sentencings. And she said, despite all of the psychological sexual evaluations that she'd reviewed, she looked right at the defendant and she said, this one frightens me. It should frighten you. It should frighten families. She said it should frighten society. She told the courtroom that she has never ordered a juvenile to register as a sex offender, but in this case, she is. And what's more here, Sean, she said after reviewing that report, she's realizing that there is a third sexual assault victim who has not yet come forward. Okay, that's a report that we've talked about that happened in Loudoun County where a boy wore a skirt or a dress into the girl's bathroom and sexually assaulted violently a girl, um, a young girl. It was not the first time he had done that. And, of course, uh, uh, Luke Rosiak, my guest, was the first person to break this story. What a terrible story to break, Luke. And, again, he writes about this in his book, Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces Destroying American Public Education. All right, so how did you find out about that? I mean, how did you find out? So the first clip you played uh, at the beginning earlier in your show, it was about being arrested at uh, you know, a school board meeting that got uh, kind of out of hand because people were very mad about this transgender policy. Well, the guy who was arrested and kind of became famous because his picture was splashed everywhere as this, you know, avatar of the uh, middle class, white, probably bigoted guy that's like being angry at school board meetings. Um, you would know this picture if you saw him, you know, he's got kind of the bloodied face and his pants are kind of falling down because the cops have like, you know, basically handcuffed him and, and dragged him to the ground. So everyone was highlighting this guy as being like bigoted or racist or causing problems at a school board meeting. And all I did is call up and say, hey, why were you mad? And no one else did that. And when I called him up oh. and said, why are you mad? He said, because my, my daughter was raped in school three weeks prior uh, by a boy wearing a skirt, of all things. And the superintendent looked out at the at the crowd in that meeting, and that's right. I mean, the, the school, the, the parents were asking questions because they were proposing this transgender policy, and the parents said, "Well, couldn't there be safety issues?" And the superintendent said, point blank, we have never had a sexual assault in our bathrooms." And his father knew it was a lie, so he got mad, like most of us would, and that's when they arrested him. And so. They wound up arresting the father of the victim before they uh, arrested the, the rapist. So, Luke, uh, be, be, let's not take for granted that people know this story. I certainly do. Uh, the dad was Scott Smith, and we did talk about it, but you recognize that there's so much news in the news cycle right now that people forget. Uh, so, uh, Scott was arrested. He was, like the, he was like the poster boy of the new domestic terrorist, you know, that the Department of Homeland Security must pursue. Turns out his daughter was raped. Uh, and um, so that leads me to this question, because I honestly don't know. Was the first issue in Fairfax County that really cranked up the parents, was it their new policy on uh, transgenderism and ba open bathrooms and all of that? Was that the first? There are many issues, but was that the first one that really got parents stoked? No. I mean, the one that really started it, and it was loud in, is um, getting rid but they did it in Fairfax, too, is getting rid of the math magnet schools or gutting their entrance exams. So, okay. you know, they have these really elite schools where, you know, if you're the smartest kid and you do homework for five hours a night and you love math, you get into these really elite schools where you get in by taking a test that shows whether you're, you know, just a total math whiz. And they started saying, well, there's too many Asians here who are doing really well and succeeding, and we can't allow that to happen. 
And so they wound up saying, well, taking a math test is not a valid way to know whether you're good at math. Um, we're going to get rid of the entrance exam and basically just have a lottery so that we can get the desire of racial outcomes. And so parents, particularly Asian parents, saw like, this is a total conspiracy theory that tests are not an, a, a valid way to measure whether you know math. And so it was really the assault on academics that first got parents uh, paying attention. You know, I had no idea. Uh, that's really interesting. Okay, so I do remember that story, but I didn't remember it preceded the transgender. I remember they started pushing hard, pushing hard these transgender policies. And of course, that wasn't new either, Luke, because the Biden administration started that. You know, they threatened to withhold school funding if all school boards around the country did not implement the policy of, and I think this is right before Obama left office, uh, if they did not open their bathrooms to, to, to whatever gender kids thought that they were. And also the whole notion of, you know, uh, expediting or implementing or helping children uh, transition to another gender, even without their parents' knowledge. I actually thought that was the thing that broke out there first. Well, it certainly broke out. And um, was this the first time that you had written about the transgender policy uh, covering the the issue of Scott Smith getting arrested? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know... To me, the issue was was cover up. Um, the school system lied about a rape ever taking place, and they also lied to the state. They filled out these forms saying no sexual assault has ever occurred, and so the motive was the sex sexual uh, the, the the fact that this kid was wearing a skirt because they did want to pass this policy. Um, but to me, the dishonesty was really what was so galling. Yes, well, uh, uh, of course, I'm. Under, I and, feel and that I way too. Point out that you know. Actually, what happened is, um, so I knew that, you know, what had, why Scott had gotten arrested that day. And I was working with him to, like, he didn't want to come forward right away because um, he wanted to let the justice system, you know, uh, the wheels of justice turn. And what happened was we found out that the school system had just transferred the kid to a second school where he went on to assault another girl in class. And so at that point, we both realized the system isn't working, and Scott decided to come forward. Did anything change? Has anything changed in the school's policy regarding transgender bathrooms being open to all students? And and in addition to that, wasn't didn't someone lose their job over this, either the superintendent or the principal? Well, so the superintendent, when he apologized for lying repeatedly, he continued to lie in his apology. He said that Title IX is the real problem, and he basically tried to to blame like Betsy DeVos and just invoke like this partisan, you know, like oh it's Trump's fault uh, when he clearly lied about it. And Title IX does not prevent you from disciplining rapists. That's absurd. Um, and so he wound up um, basically saying he misunderstood a question, which is also demonstrably untrue if you really parse what happened at that meeting. And then later he kind of let his deputy take the fall. Um, so the deputy kind of lost his job over this. But they never took responsibility, and they continued to kind of lie about what the real issue here was. So I don't have any – they're really kind of just doubling down. So nothing oh, – yes. And then let's talk about a couple of the other issues that we've seen. And I know it's not just uh, Fairfax and Loudoun County. It's, it's spread across the country. But we would be remiss if we did not uh, jump into the critical race theory controversy. And um, let's talk about that a little bit, Luke. Did you, um, 
I have so many clips, but I don't know the sequence of events. Do you know yourself what the genesis was of parents exposing that? Um, you know, it really it was remote learning when the when the teachers unions refused to go to work for over a year. The the parents had to um, you know, have these kids do their classes from the living room on their laptops and they were able to see what was going on. But I can tell you it's not new. The classes had actually been pretty similar for a long time. Parents just had no idea. And some people think it's, oh, like because of George Floyd and all that, you started hearing a lot about race in society in general. They probably just added it to the schools then. That's not the case. I mean, they've been doing this in classes for in, in classrooms for, for years. Parents just had no idea. No, I think you're absolutely right. And because critical race theory is a lot less it's a lot more difficult to explain than, say, uh, transgender bathrooms or even as complex as that is because critical race theory is more subtle. It's more insidious, insidious, really. And as the left is so good at doing, they always put positive spin on everything they're doing, when it, even when it's horrific. And so I think it was a little bit more difficult to uncover. Uh, but when do you think that parents in Loudoun and Fairfax began to really, what caused those crowds? Now, I know that you talked about the, the Asian parents objecting to the, uh, the standards, the math standards, and I, I remember that too, but I don't think the, the crowds really got really incensed until later, as in the first clip we played. So what, what caused that? Was it your writing, you think? Was it word of mouth? Was there a parents group? What? Um, yeah, I mean, part of it was a couple policies that they passed that were so clearly illiberal. Um, one of them said that if any teachers disagreed, teachers were not allowed to disagree with the racial policies of the schools, even in private communications, even in private phone calls outside of work hours. Um, and so there was this really like almost totalitarian cultish dynamic. And when they put that policy, it got some attention. People started realizing this isn't like oh, you know, Bill Clinton voters, like good old-fashioned, like Democrat stuff. This is a weird kind of strain of literally not even liberalism, it's illiberalism. Um, another story that really started to turn the heat up is in about a year ago today, I did a story about what's become known as Chardonnay Antifa, which was this secret Facebook group where the school board members and the county prosecutor uh, were getting together with like teachers and radical activists and in this Facebook group, they made a list of parents that criticized school policies. And most of those parents were criticizing schools for being closed. It had nothing to do with race or anything else. They said, we want our kids to go to school. And they targeted them for hacking and doxing. They were compiling where they worked, who their spouses were. And so I think that's really one of the things that put Loudoun County on the national map. You know, that sounds, doesn't that really sound a whole lot like your article uh, a couple of days ago in New York Post about the dad? Brian Davison, same same thing, targeting, isolating, trying to destroy him, trying to take his kids away. It's really the same thing but different. Uh, and then the last issue, oh, I'm sure there are many more, but was the whole uh, COVID shutdown, the, the, the remote learning and also the masking. Um, so of those issues, what do you think cranked the parents up the most? I think the school closures were a bigger deal. Um I think it, there was a lot of people that are, you know, most people, particularly in Fairfax, are Democrat voters, um, but they didn't like this. And there was this reckoning where it's like, if this is what it means to be a Democrat now, that my kids can't go to school for two years, then I guess I'm not a Democrat anymore. And they were just lecturing parents, you know, you're not being a loyal member of the party if you 
if you want your kids to be in school. And so there was this total realignment politically because the, te- the, the Democrats just went all in with the teachers' union. And it became very clear that teachers' unions' interests are not the same as, as children's interests. So I think, you know, this, the school shutdowns were the biggest thing by far. And even though schools are open now, we need to remember the underlying dynamics, which are when push came to shove, they were willing to harm children to put money in the pockets of teachers. And that's a dynamic that has been in place for decades and is going to continue to be in place even after coronavirus passes. Yep, you're right. And there'll be something else. They're not going to stop with that. And because, as you have described, they really were not defeated. I mean, some policies were pushed back. Uh, but many of them, are, and now the school board members, weren't many of them, haven't they been replaced already, or is that coming up? Well, in Loudoun and Fairfax, they were uh, elected in 2019, and no one was paying attention. And so they're not on the ballot again until 2023. Um, we also don't have a recall system except for, you know, a judge has to agree to recall them. And so one of the things we have is these Soros-funded prosecutors that are basically being openly corrupt and just refusing to prosecute these recalls. Wow. See, that's something I had no idea. So Glenn Youngkin then comes in and is elected, and probably not in small part because of parents, as you just described, crossing over uh, out of fury at the school boards and the autocratic rule. Uh, of the of the boards and the teachers and the teachers have to be included not all of them but many of them have to be included in this uh, and I think that's probably would you say that that's probably one of the reasons Glenn Youngkin had such a resounding victory? Yeah, it's absolutely the reason. And he's so so has he made a difference? You think in Virginia and these school boards any demonstrable difference? Yeah, I mean he's kept his promise. He's he's forced the schools to take masks off of kids, which they were never going to do. Um, you know, he's gotten rid of the obsession with racializing every aspect of education because it really does. There's only so many hours in the day. So when you talk about race, you're not talking about algebra. Um, you know, you're not talking about geography or whatever. Um, and, and so he's done what he can do at the state level. He's going to continue to do that. I think people have been really happy with it. But there's still this issue of education is controlled primarily at the state level. And so that's where yes. parents have got to remain involved. Or, excuse me, at the local level. So that's and where actually, parents have got to remain involved. Luke, let me say you did a deep dive into the deep roots of this. It's not local. It's really global. But it's in terms of our country, and I want to talk about that next. Where is all this coming from? Luke Rosiak is our guest. His new book is Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces destroying American public education. We'll be right back after this. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream that my four little children will one day live a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now I have a dream that we will implement love, not hate, or supporting another Jim Crow's agenda. 
CRT is not an honest dialogue. It is a tactic that was used by Hitler and the Ku Klux Klan on slavery very many years ago to dumb down my ancestors so we could not think for ourselves. CRT is racist. It is abusive. It discriminates against one's color. Let me educate you. An honest dialogue does not impress, oppress. An honest dialogue does not implement hatred or injustice. It's to communicate with deceiving, without deceiving people. Today, we don't need your agreement. We want action in the backbone for what we asked for today, to ban CRT. We don't want your political advertisement to divide our children or belittle them. Think twice before you indoctrinate such racist theories. You cannot tell me what is or is not racist. Look at me. I had to come down here today to tell you to your face that we are coming together and we are strong. This will not be the last. Greet and meet respectfully. All right, that's a black mom in, uh, I think she's in Fairfax County. Uh, hit a nerve, I do believe, critical race theory, which teaches that all white people are racists and blacks are victims, basically. A critical race theory, uh, uh, Luke Rosiak is my guest, and again, his new book is Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces, Destroying American Public Education. Um, Luke, my understanding, and I want to get you what you've, you've written about this, but that critical theory was part of Marxist teaching, and that this actually emanated from that. Is that what you have discovered, or is there more to it than that, too, also? Yeah, that's that's pretty much right. It's, it's white, it opposes whiteness, but where it gets weird is it also redefines whiteness as meaning anything that's dominant. And so dominant can mean, like in the context of school systems, these critical race theory scholars specifically say, the scientific method is an, exa- is an example of something that's dominant in education. And so we should get rid of the scientific method solely because it's widely used. And so what you realize, once you realize that they define words that way, is it's just a mechanism for destabilizing society. It, it has no other goal other than just tearing things down solely because uh, they're commonly done or they, or they work. And so it's really, it's a, it's a virus. It's a takeover mechanism that says, well, at school, you shouldn't be teaching kids education. You should just be creating more critical race theory. Well, what does critical race theory do? Nothing, really. Just tear things down and spread itself. So it's, it's a deeply destructive force. It's not one that proposes solution. It just says racism is everywhere, and we're going to sit around and, and talk about where. You know, I, get, I had never heard that. You've taught me something, because I, I did not—this explains, then, why they have attacked classical music you know, the roots of classical music, that's racist. I was thinking, why why is that? Because uh, uh, whiteness is anything that's dominant. And then Shakespeare and the classics, all of that. Now that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Of course, there's a lot more to it, but you are right. And I want to make this point because I've had these discussions lately. I I don't want to talk through your interview. It's just that when you understand that what's happening in our country, whether it's overseas or internally, it's uh, it's our energy supplies, it's our schools, it's uh, flying, it's the borders. The Marxist way is to destroy everything, the underpinnings of everything, to completely wipe out the norm, whether it's the family or it's a social group, because then you have nothing to depend on except for government and the people that want to rule you. And that's how it works. So critical race theory, racism is just a tool to get to that. And uh, the rest of it is, too. It's just a means to an end. It's taking you know, advantage of a never let a good crisis waste go to waste, and that's what they do believe. But you got practical, Luke, and you looked behind the curtain to see greater than just school boards 
um, and superintendents of school, the forces, the money forces behind this, and what did you find? So the simple answer for where critical race theory is coming from is the Ford Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, and the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, And those groups have been colluding and operating as a cartel for over 100 years for the primary purpose of pushing bizarre and odious racial ideas. Um, The foundation's mission in the early 1900s was eugenics. Um, they had this creepy warehouse in Long Island where they were compiling lists. They were compiling information about every American family's genes. They could figure out which families had inferior genes and we could get rid of them. Um, they did in the 1950s, or in the 1960s, they tried to resegregate New York City schools. In the 1990s, they became obsessed with um, targeting minorities for abortion. And now they're pushing these um, ideas that uh, getting the right answer or working hard or showing up on time are attributes of whiteness, and it's not something a black person would want to do. And so the language has changed in some ways on the surface, but the result has always been consistently the same. This is crea- trying to create this, situ- this, this reality where racial disparities and this, this you know under- problems with an underclass are maintained because they don't want to help minorities uh, succeed. It really is stunning. And, uh, you know, a couple of things about that. You, if those names sound familiar to anyone. Kellogg, Rockefeller, MacArthur, Ford. They are all sponsors of the things you love on PBS. Uh, you know, you hear it like this is the um, Masterpiece Theater brought to you by MacArthur and Ford Foundation, all these lovely sounding things. And they've done horrible things with the money that was left to them by their founders, who in many cases were... Uh, maybe great businessmen, philanthropists, who probably didn't have this in mind. That also reminds me, too, Luke, of uh, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, uh, who, you know, in her publications was written that black people were human weeds that needed to be destroyed. And that's part of the whole eugenics eugenics that she was into. And Hitler loved the eugenics movement, and Margaret Sanger. And he, of course, eradicated the Jewish population. That's that's the wicked root of this. I just wanted to make that point. It's horrible. Um, I don't know. I, I just don't even know how to, how to underscore that anymore. Um, so how in the world, is it just by sheer money and planning, you think, that they got their hooks into American education? It certainly wasn't an accident. No, I mean, the the money was necessary, but not sufficient. Um, the reason why it was invited into the schools is because they have their own very cynical and self-serving reasons for embracing it, which have nothing to do with race. And the issue is concealing their failures when it comes to actually educating our children. So when you look at test scores and math, we're ranked number 30th, America's 30th mm-hmm. out of 36 developed nations. That's terrible. Um, we've got 11% of 12th graders are proficient in history. 36% of our students are literate. Um, it's like 24% in math in terms of 12th graders who are proficient in math. I mean, these are terrible, terrible numbers. And we spend $17,000 per student on average um, per year. And so these schools have a tremendous amount of funding, and yet they are just sending so many of our kids out onto lifetimes of you know government dependency and um, uh, you know, unfortunately not being able to be productive members of society because they have been failed by these teachers. And 
they cannot let people realize that because it's kind of like the heist of the century they got going on. The money keeps, keeps coming, and they don't have to succeed at their jobs. And so the test scores threaten to expose all that. But CRT gives them reason to ignore uh, the test scores because objectivity isn't real and tests are racist and trying to get the right answer, they claim, is a, is a white attribute. And so it works out pretty nicely for being able to say, well, see all those horrible statistics, never mind, we don't have to care about them. I think one of the big obvious indicators that something's really wrong with the motivation of teachers, and again, we're using a broad stroke, I recognize not every teacher falls in this category, but uh, as a group, and certainly through their unions, uh, this whole, uh, you know, out, you know, not coming back to work, not coming back into the classroom because they're so afraid they're going to, you know, get COVID. Uh, and they've worked for months, you know, a year, a couple, a year and a half now, or I don't know exactly, but at least a year, uh, without, you know, drawing, never, never missing a heartbeat with their salary, while many Americans have struggled and lost their jobs and refusing to go back into the classroom, even when the science, if we could use that term, if we mean the real science, uh, shows that it's ridiculous for to, for them to be out of class. So they have sort of showed us the, the underbelly of their thought, and it isn't about kids. But I want to ask you, uh, you did pretty much a deep dive into unions too, Alu. Can you tell us your perspective of what you found and their, their role in this? Yeah, I mean, what people need to understand is these special interests in schools, as, you, as, as people saw during the shutdowns, is they're ruthless. I mean, they're willing to inflict emotional, physical, and sexual harm on, on your children just to get um, some minor advantages, you know, work from home or whatever. Um, of course, they demanded that they get the vaccine because otherwise they would die. But they were forcing, during the period they were working from home, in many districts, they were forcing the district to pay for daycare workers to watch their own kids. And so they didn't care if these daycare workers who were making, like, you know, minimum wage, basically, uh, supposedly, uh, were at risk of this deadly virus. Um, you know, basically, they demanded to go to the front of the line and get these vaccines. And one of the things that I found is that in Fairfax County, Virginia, 75 elderly people died of coronavirus during the period where teachers cut to the front of the line. And after they got the vaccine, what did they do? They said, oh, never mind, we're still not going to come back to work even after we got the vaccine. So there is this sheer ruthlessness underlying um, these people's, uh, what they're willing to do to kids in schools. And we saw that with masks. We see it with the weird gender stuff. We saw it with the rape cover-up. And we see it with the emotional harm inflicted on kids um, by by CRT, teaching, making little kids who are happy and innocent and joyous feel like they're actually oppressed and should feel despair. And so, yeah, I mean, the abuse of children is really a detestable thing, and we're seeing that in a number of ways in order for adults to get their preferred policy. You know what's interesting, Luke, when you go back through the history, again, I keep I have a theme here, I guess I keep saying communism, but it is my, my experience because I have been, I spent a lot of time in communist countries and uh, know a bit about this. So, you know, it's interesting that Mao studied uh, communism with the European communists, and one of the things they instructed him to do was to work through the labor unions, and of course the European the Euro, uh, Europe did too. And and in America, when the Marxists sort of, uh, I would I guess I look back to the ni- 1917 and earlier probably, but that's when they really started getting active here in this country. It was always through the unions, and you know unions have value because la- workers do need protection against some wealthy, uh, ruthless 
people because people can be ruthless on both sides of the point. So they do need some protection. So they have their value, but I don't understand why they're such a petri dish for this kind of radicalism. Any thoughts about that? Um, you know, it has certainly been the theme in education. Um, you know, they actually work through, um, there's a group called Center for Popular Democracy that brings together a number of labor unions, both teachers' unions, but also other labor unions. And they've really been pushing very effectively these radical policies. Um, and then you also have, obviously, um, the fact that I think people don't pay much attention in primary elections, especially in local elections. The teachers' unions have this extraordinary power because most of us don't even know who these school board members are. And so some of that, I think, is going to change. It's been the asymmetry of, of people not having been paying, paying attention. I think their power is going to be diminished a little bit, but we just need to be really clear that schools do not exist to employ adults. They exist for one reason alone, um, which is to educate children. And we, ne- we need to never forget that, is the, the teachers work for us. And you know, to kind of bring it back to the, the Brian Davison story in Loudoun, um, remember, all he was doing was saying, like, are teachers helping kids? get smarter each year, and they were not letting him ask that. And so um, if, if, if having a labor union means we're not allowed to, to see whether teachers are doing their job effectively, then, then that's a problem. You know, Luke, I also just some perspective on this. Uh, even though uh, you just described to us at Loudon and Fairfax where the, the story broke and it really became a national story, thank God for that, even though the election for those school board members isn't until 2023, there, I can tell you there are school boards all over the country, you probably know this, but a lot of people contact me, where people have gotten, parents have risen up, they've been inspired, and they have gotten, uh, they have defeated tons of really bad school board members around the country. It's just we can't stop. We can't stop. We've got to get, we've got to take back our schools and our country. The book is called Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces Destroying American Public Education. Great endorsements by Ben Shapiro and Mark Levin and Peter Schweitzer. It's, uh, I'm no doubt, a great book because Luke's a great writer. Luke Rosiak, again, uh, by the way, you can read his uh, other things about other topics at the Daily Wire. So, Luke, thanks for giving us so much of your time today. We wish you all the best on this book tour and all the best. Uh, and getting the word out through your book, Race to the Bottom. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.